Let's close our eyes in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, let that passage we read from Paul uh, in 2 Corinthians be our prayer, Father, that we are always willing to be ambassadors of Christ uh, in good times and bad, whether we are of good repute or bad repute. Father, let us be so passionate for the name of your Son that we are willing to bear any price and pay any burden, Father, uh, for the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we're continuing our series on the book of Acts, which we'll be sticking with until the end of November. And like we talked about earlier, the book of Acts is all about the early church. What is the church? Why does it exist? How did it get started? That's what the book of Acts says. And it's actually a really interesting read. You can probably read it all the way through in two hours. It's not that hard. Uh, And today we'll be picking up the story in Acts chapter 5. So far, Jesus has ascended to heaven where he's enthroned as ruler of creation at the right hand of the Father. That's what we Christians believe, right? And the Spirit of God has descended upon the disciples and they're empowered. They're speaking in tongues. They're preaching. They're healing people. And they're going out into the world. Very similar to what Jesus did during his ministry when he was teaching and healing people and driving out demons. And day by day, In the first five chapters of Acts, we see that their numbers are growing, right? To the point where a couple weeks back, last time when we talked about Acts chapter 4, we talked about how Peter and John healed a lame man. Do you guys remember that? And outside the temple gates, they were teaching about the resurrection of the dead inside the temple, and that leads to them being arrested. And so two weeks ago in Acts 4, we talked about how the priests and the temple guards ordered Peter and John not to heal or preach in the name of Jesus, But instead, Peter and John met with the other church church leaders in Jerusalem. They pray, and the Spirit of God comes down again, this time as an earthquake. And they continue to proclaim the name of Christ. And as they do, the church continues to grow and grow. And all the believers are united. Uh, I don't know if you've ever been a part of something where you feel like, oh man, everyone here, even though I don't know your name, we're all united, focused on this one thing. But that's what they were doing. And And people were so united that they were selling off their possessions and bringing it to the apostles so that the apostles could distribute it to anyone who had any needs, anyone who was poor. So much so that in Acts 4 at the end, Luke writes, no one out of the thousands of people, about 8,000 people at this point are the church, not a single one of them was poor. Because anytime anyone had a need, uh, someone would just sell their possessions to meet that need. So far, there's been some opposition to the apostles, But mostly what we've been hearing is growth, growth, growth. The power of the Spirit uniting everyone into one church. Healing, baptisms, uh, speaking in tongues, people giving up all their possessions to take care of one another. There's a power going on here that is palpable, that you can almost touch. And we want that kind of power in our churches, that kind of uniting spirit. I know I do. Uh, But Christian life is not just made up of the highs of ministry, Yes, there are going to be times of revival and renewal and new bursts of energy and unity, and it all can be very exciting. But if we have that expectation for every single day of Christian life, we're going to be crushed because we're always going to be chasing that feeling of excitement, that feeling of the extraordinary. And we're very quickly going to be disappointed and disillusioned because Christian life is about announcing to a world of sin a world of broken people, a world of disunity, that a new Christ-shaped world is available to them. And it's about liberating people enslaved to sin to enjoy the fruits of the Spirit, the higher fruits. Um, That's a wonderful, amazing task. 
but it means that you're going to face opposition and frustration, more frustration than um, you may see at the outside of your Christian life. And that opposition will rise both within the church and from outside the church, from without the church. But I hope what you can see is that if you love something enough, you are willing to suffer for it. The test of how much you love something is how much pain and how much sacrifice you're willing to take on for it. Does that make sense? If you're not willing to undergo pain for something, that means that your love for it isn't as high as maybe some other love, some competing love is. So what we see in this chapter is by the end of the chapter, we're going to read a verse where the apostles praise God because they think it's such an honor to suffer for the name of Jesus. And that reveals what their greatest love is. It was a, a passion for the lordship of, G, of Christ. Because they recognize that if Jesus is Lord, then sins are forgiven, creation will be renewed, and death has been defeated. So that's what we will see in this chapter. Uh, the opposition from inside the church, the opposition from outside the church, and what it means to be followers of Jesus, the suffering servant. So that's what we're going to focus on today. So if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 5, and we're going to read the first portion of it, starting with verse 1. But a man named Ananias, with the consent of his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property. With his wife's knowledge, he kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Ananias, Peter asked, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. Now when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard of it. The young men came and wrapped up his body then carried him out and buried him. After about three hours had passed, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter said to her, tell me whether you and your husband sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to it, how is it that you have agreed together to put the spirit of the Lord to the test? Look, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. Immediately she fell down at his feet and died. When the young men came in, they found her dead. So they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear seized the whole church and all who heard these things. So what exactly happened here? Basically, Ananias and Sapphira are members of the church. And they sell some land to give the money to the apostles. But they pretend when they're giving it to the apostles that it's all the money they got from the land. But secretly, they kept some back for themselves, right? And the husband does it first. As soon as Peter confronts him, he dies. The wife comes in later, uh, not knowing what had happened. Peter asks her the second question. Hey, is this really the price you got for the land? You gave all of it to us? She says, yeah, she also dies. It's a very weird story, the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And usually, people are not very happy with it. I'm not happy with it. Why weren't Ananias and Sapphira forgiven? Why weren't they given an opportunity to repent? Why weren't they given a second chance? And reading this story and reflecting on it, I mean, that's the good thing about going through a whole book straight. You can't skip over the parts that are actually kind of challenging. A lot of times, 
I realize a lot of times we bring our own moral judgments when we read the Bible instead of allowing the Bible to read us and shape our morals. So as Christians, we sit under the authority of Scripture, properly interpreted, right? But we still sit under the authority of Scripture. And so the first task we have whenever we find a passage that's uncomfortable, a passage that's challenging, is to press on and wrestle with it and try and understand what it's trying to say to us. So right before Ananias and Sapphira decide to pretend like they're bringing all the money from the sale to uh, Peter, we, we read this at the end of Acts chapter 4. There was a Levite, a native of Cyprus, Joseph, to whom the apostles gave the name Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He sold a field that belonged to him, then brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so right before we read the story of Ananias and Sapphira, I think it's significant that we hear the story of Barnabas. So Barnabas, uh, the apostles noticed what a great sacrifice Barnabas had done. He had just sold a field that owned him, and he brought all the money to the apostles to give out to the poor. And so I think this, this helps us understand what's going on. That story, having that story placed before Ananias and Sapphira is a clue that Ananias and Sapphira were seeking a similar sort of praise from the apostles. That's the motivation for their gift. They wanted that kind of applause, right? Oh, you also sold all your land and brought all the money to us. And that's the reason that they lied to them. Notice, it's, you have to be careful when you read this. Peter's not upset with them because of the amount of money that they're giving. He says specifically, in the, if you look back at the verses, look, it's your land. You can decide whether you sell it or keep it. We're not making you do that. And after you decide to sell it, you can decide how much of it you want to give to the church and how much you want to keep. We're not making you do that either. What Peter is upset about, read what he says, is that they are testing the Holy Spirit. They are pretending like they're giving everything. They have seen all these wonders and signs and experienced the presence of God in their midst. And even still, it is not love for God that is animating their actions. And that's the crucial point. What Ananias and Sapphira were chasing after were the praise and recognition that, from others that would have come if everyone believed they were donating all their money. But they wanted to get that praise without going through the actual sacrifice of giving away all that money. And I think for us, what's important to realize is there's a way of being involved in quote-unquote church where what we are really after is the praise of other people, the recognition, the recognition and status we can get in the church arena from other people. Maybe sometimes we feel like we're not getting that praise in other areas of our life uh, romantically or career-wise or school-wise. So we start seeing the Church of Christ as an arena where we can seek after that praise, where we can get that recognition, uh, where we can be at the front preaching like I am to you, right? We, and so we always have to be on guard against that. It's one of the easiest ways for corruption to seep into the church when the focus shifts. This is a form of opposition that comes from inside the church. It's an opposition coming from Satan. That's what Peter identifies it as. And we always have to be on defense against it. We have to defend against it. As the church, we believe that the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, really dwells within our hearts, right? So do you understand what that means? If you really read uh, the Old Testament, that means something amazing. But also, if you understand the implications, that's actually kind of terrifying, too. Because over and over again in the Old Testament, the holiness of God is understood as so alien to the human experience that to even stand 
on holy ground. Uh, to even stand somewhat in the presence of God threatens your destruction, threatens your doom, threatens your unraveling. He's like a blazing fire so that if you don't take the proper precautions to stand in his presence mean that you will be consumed, you will be snuffed out. Do you remember the stories in the Old Testament? Someone places their tabernacle, their hand on the tabernacle by accident when it's like about to fall and they immediately drop dead. That's a story in the Old Testament. Because the, the tabernacle was understood as the place where God had poured out his special presence, his significant presence as a reassurance to the Israelites. They had prayed for that. But because he had sanctified it as so holy, someone who was trying to keep it from falling put his hand on it and he dropped dead. Isaiah sees the glory of God come down in the temple later on, and he cries out, Woe is me, I am undone, I am a man of unclean lips, right? He's, he's afraid he's going to die. Moses, like, begs God, he says, God, show me your glory, I want to see your face. And God says, if you see my face, Moses, you're going to die. So he only shows Moses his back. So to say that the Spirit of God dwells within us. When we read that in the New Testament, that is an amazing thing. To Jewish people or to Muslim people today, that's a blasphemous thing to say. To say that the holiness of God resides in our hearts, that's crazy. That's what Christians believe. We believe that this holy presence, this dangerous consuming fire now lives inside us. And that is true of us from the moment of our baptism and it grows. We can, we can walk away from it, but it grows as long as we continue to pursue God. The holiness of God lives within us, and that is both awesome and terrifying, because if we dishonor that in the way that we treat our bodies, in the way that we behave, there are awful consequences. And that's what we see in the story of Ananias and Sapphira, if we really believe it. That's what we see in that story. They bear within themselves the spirit of God, but they have succumbed to the lies of Satan, and the holiness of God within them cannot permit that, and they die. So there's a warning for us in this passage. It's so easy for us to start doing things out of love for God. Um, But then when we start to see that leading worship or preaching or leading the youth or working with the church leads to praise and recognition, the focus of our hearts changes. And slowly but surely we start to do things for the applause, for the praise we get from others. And that's the way that Satan takes a foothold inside the church. So that's why Peter is so firm and harsh and it seems even unloving here, but he's actually being very loving. He's being loving to the flock. He's protecting the flock of Christ from satanic opposition. This passage also tells us how we protect our flock from satanic opposition. Obviously, leaders like Peter have an obligation to call it out, but the people have a a reaction when they see what happened to Ananias and Sapphira, right? There spreads throughout the body a great fear. And this is the fear of the Lord. After this happens, spirit spreads throughout the early church. But this is not an unhealthy fear, the fear of like uh, an evil person or a bad person who wishes us harm. This is the fear of the Lord, which is talked about in the Old Testament. The idea that God is so holy, so other, so perfect, that we must wield the things of God, which now include ourselves, with a reverent respect. And now... So now our actions, everything that we do, because the Spirit of God lives within us, that means that everything we do has to be carried out with this healthy fear of the Lord. And if we start losing the fear of the Lord, if we start thinking of God as just this, you know, hippie in the sky, I think we lose that. And then destructive consequences flow down in our lives and in our communities. So that's that first part, the opposition from within. Uh, What about opposition from without? 
Well, I'm not, not going to read the passage to you. Um, I'll, we'll pick up in the story later on. But what happens after Ananias and Sapphira die is the apostles continue to preach and heal and drive out demons. And it's amazing. Their reputation grows to the point that people start trying to place themselves uh, where Peter, when walking by, his shadow would fall upon them. Because in that way, they would be healed. This should remind us of when, you know, the woman tries to touch just the hem of Jesus' garment, right? Jesus had, his reputation for healing had grown so much that people began to have the faith that, hey, if I just touch the hem of Jesus' garment, I will be healed. And they were. And the same thing is now starting to be true of the apostles. They're hoping that just the shadow of Peter will pass over them so that they can be healed. And as more and more people join the church, the high priests and the Sadducees become jealous and they arrest uh, the apostles and they put them in prison for the night so that they can call the full Sanhedrin, the full council of rulers in Jerusalem, to come and try them, to hear them in the morning. But when they come in the morning, the apostles are gone. Because what had happened is, uh, in the night, an angel of the Lord had come, unlocked the doors, and sent them out. And they had gone straight to the temple and began preaching again. So in the morning, you know, the, the guards come to the it's kind of actually kind of funny the way, the way they write. It's a little comical that the guards come in and they're like, oh, we don't know where they are. Where are they? And then someone walks in, runs in and says, hey, those guys you're looking for, they're in the temple preaching. And they're like, what? And so then they go and they have to go get them. And they're afraid. They're so afraid because the apostles are so popular with the people at this point that they, they try not to be rough with them. They're like, here, come with us. You need to be tried before the elders. And that's where we pick up the story in verse 27. The apostles are standing before the Sanhedrin, the council of rulers. Verse 27, when they had brought them, they had them stand before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you are determined to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior, that he might give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter gets at the heart of the issue here, explaining the conflict between the Jewish rulers and the apostles in verse 29. We must obey God rather than any human authority. Which authority do we acknowledge as supreme? Who decides what we should do or not do? Human authorities, uh, the powers and principalities, want to arrange the world according to whatever best protects their own power, their standing in the world. And they have two tools to do it, right? Praise for those, praise and rewards for those who obey their rules, and punishment for those who disobey their rules. This is every government, this is every organization, how they replicate themselves, how they get people to agree, every company. Praise and favor for those who acknowledge their authority and follow the rules, and suffering and punishment for those who refuse their authority, who buck the rules. And when Jesus came, if you read the Gospels, you see that the rulers tried to impose the same logic on him. At first seeing his popularity, the human authorities tried to co-opt Jesus into their own systems of power. They tried to reason with him. They tried to argue with him. They tried to meet with him late at night to discuss alliances. But when that didn't work, when they saw that he would refuse to submit to them, and instead insisted on the total priority of the kingdom of God, where the last are first, uh, where the poor have good news, they killed him. 
right? That was their reaction because now he was a threat to their system of power. They hung him from a tree. Deuteronomy tells us in the Old Testament that cursed is any man who hangs from a tree. But God reverses the verdict delivered upon Jesus by human authorities and raises Jesus up from the dead to show human authorities that their arrangement of the world is not ultimate. Their kingdoms will not last forever. There is a God who is coming to end all the sinful arrangements of the world, the injustice, the oppression of women, the killing of children, the racism, the starvation of the poor, the destruction of the planet, all in the name of profit and power. It's going to end because one day God is going to come down and rearrange all of creation around the name of Jesus Christ, which is the name of healing, restoration, justice, and peace. And because he is a good God, a God of love, before that final reconciliation of all things, he has created a space of grace, a period of time after the resurrection, but before the second coming, where the church offers grace to the world, inviting them to partake of the righteous life of Christ before the coming judgment of fire. That's what Peter says to the Sanhedrin. And after hearing Peter speak, the Jewish rulers are so mad, they're so enraged that they want to kill them all. But a wise Pharisee in the Sanhedrin named Gamaliel, who later we find out was actually the Apostle Paul's teacher, Gamaliel, he stands up and addresses the council. And he tells them, look, we live in revolutionary times in Judea. There's always one person or another rising up, claiming to be the Messiah who's going to restore the kingdom to Israel. There was Theudas. Uh, there was, I think his name was Jude afterward. They're, they're, one after another, they come claiming to be Messiah. But it's always sooner or later, they're killed. And the typical pattern is they rise up, people flock to their banner, they're killed, and all their followers scatter. And it's going to be like that with these disciples too, if they are wrong. If this is a false Messiah and his followers experience more opposition and more suffering, they're going to give up. They're going to scatter. But if this is the true Messiah, if this is from God and not from man, then nothing we do will be able to stop it. That's what Gamaliel said to the Sanhedrin. And that's where we pick up in verse 39. The Sanhedrin were convinced by Gamaliel. And when they had called in the apostles, they had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. As they left the council, they rejoiced that they were considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. And every day in the temple and at home, they did not cease to teach and proclaim Jesus as the Messiah. This is how we can have confidence, I think, uh, that Jesus is the true Messiah. Because everything that happened in Christianity with the early church is historical fact. In the face of overwhelming suffering, in the face of torture by the Romans, in the face of ostracism by the Jews, the apostles and the early church did not cease teaching and proclaiming Jesus as Lord and Christ. And it is because they were empowered by the Spirit to be willing to take on pain, to suffer out of love for God and their neighbor, that the church spread triumphantly to all corners of the earth. As Gamaliel said, if it's from God, no power on earth will be able to stop it. So remember the point I made back in the beginning of the message. Our highest loves are revealed by what we are willing to suffer for. Ananias and Sapphira wanted praise, they wanted the reputation, but they didn't want to actually sacrifice their everything for God. God was not ultimate in their lives. Peter and the apostles are imprisoned, they're beaten, they're threatened within an inch of their lives. And church history tells us that all of these early leaders, with the exception of the apostle John, die horrific deaths. Deaths of torture, many of them crucified or crucified upside down, crucified sideways. And they, but they praised God until the moment of their death because despite their suffering, 
They are spreading the name of Jesus Christ. And that leads us to the question, what are you suffering for the sake of the kingdom of God? And if you are not suffering for its sake, are you willing to see that this means that God may not be your highest love? Because to bear the spirit of God means that you will be sent out into the desperate dark corners of the world and you're just, it's not even like you're forced to do it. It's not a duty. You're not able to contain the fire burning within you. You will not be able to prevent yourself from pouring out your everything into others out of love for God. Because the church is raised to the image of the incarnate son, Jesus Christ, who is the suffering servant. God revealed how much he is committed to this world, how much he is committed to life and creation, how much he is committed to you and me because he condescended to this universe as a perfect human life and suffered humiliation after humiliation to redeem us, to buy us back, to redeem us all. Isaiah 53 speaks of what this suffering servant is like, and he's speaking of Jesus. And this is what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 53. Who has believed what we have heard, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. In his appearance he was ugly, we did not desire him. He was despised and rejected by others, a man of suffering and acquainted with infirmity. And as one from whom others hide their faces... He was despised, and we held him of no account. Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our diseases. Yet we considered him stricken, struck down by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the punishment that made us whole, and by his bruises we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have all turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By a perversion of justice he was taken away. Who could have imagined his future? For he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. They made his grave with the wicked and his tomb with the rich, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of God to crush him with pain, to make his life an offering for sin. He shall see his offspring and shall proclaim his days. Through him the will of the Lord shall prosper. Out of his anguish he shall see light. He shall find satisfaction through the knowledge that the righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous, and he will bear their iniquities." Therefore, I will exalt him and give him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the sinners. Why did Jesus Christ suffer? Why did Jesus Christ pour himself out to death? If we believe that Jesus is God, the second person of the Trinity, existing in the triune life, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from eternity past. He had everything. He inherited all the world. So why did Jesus pour himself out to death? And verse 11 tells us to find satisfaction through the knowledge that he will raise many up to righteousness. With his suffering and death, Jesus Christ revealed the depth 
of God's love for us. If you know how much someone loves you by how much suffering they're willing to take on, then consider how much suffering Christ took on for you and for me. The test of love is suffering, right? Jesus Christ suffered cosmic separation, cosmic abandonment, uh, which means that in his body he bears the scars of hell for you and me. He loved us all the way to death. This is the God we worship, the God who is a suffering servant, the God who is willing to condescend and to suffer and to humiliate himself in order to reconcile this world. And when we worship this God and are given this spirit, the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, we are transformed into a society of suffering servants. That's what we have been chosen for. I know a lot of times people read the Bible and they get into these debates about election or predestination. The point of predestination, the point of election, is that we have been chosen for suffering for the kingdom of God. That's what the purpose of election is, to suffer out of love for God in the world and to invite the world to enter into the righteousness available in Christ, even when it means we need to take on pain. And we can do so, we can be transformed like this by gazing at the one who is pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. He's the king who leads us as a suffering army ready to bleed for the world. Let's close our eyes in prayer. Heavenly Father, I just pray that these words be able to sink into all our hearts, that we never um, lose our focus from you and begin to live for the applause of men, for the applause of uh, our families or the institutions or our, our, our friends, uh, the institutions we're working in or studying in, Father, that we simply bask in the applause we enjoy from you because we know that Christ's blood has covered over all our sins. And so now when you look at us, you see us as spotless and innocent and clean. And now, Father, we ask that you send your spirit down upon us, the same spirit that resided in Christ, so that we are willing and eager to go out into the world, into the dark, desperate corners of this world, to bring your light. Give us wisdom to bring that life, uh, to bear that light um, in a compelling way, in a beautiful way, so that we can win more and more people to your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and say the Apostles' Creed.